My title is taken from 2 Timothy or 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. The God of all comfort. The second letter that Paul writes is a sequel to the first. Paul is forced because of attacks on his ministry and attacks on his person and his integrity to say things about himself that he finds rather distasteful. You can tell as you read this letter, he does not want to say these things, but he needs to for the sake of the Corinthian church. There have been some men that have arrived just recently before the writing of this letter that are the source of Paul's attacks. Of course, there are still some in Corinth that are against Paul, while many had repented due to his first letter. He writes this letter, chapter 2 says, out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. So Paul tells us things about himself that we can't find in any other letter that he wrote. And so as we look at this letter, our aim is not to look at Paul, it's to look at Paul under trusting the God of his comfort, the God of his salvation, and how Paul received this comfort and what he's speaking to us today through this letter. So we look at four things this morning. The source of comfort, the purpose of this comfort, the illustration of the comfort, and then we're going to look at the design or the pathway of the comfort. And it may not be in that order. So source, purpose, pathway, illustration. First, the source is very obvious. Paul says that God is the Father of mercies. He's the God of all comfort. Who is comforting us? Whatever the comfort, whatever means and channels, it comes to you. God is the source. He's the origin of all kinds of comfort. Now, comfort is a word that's taking on new meaning and significance for me as I grow older. It begins to govern, really, everything I'm about. You know, I was young, I might pick a car that had a sharp stripe down the side, a certain color, and it was kind of quick on the, on the pedal, fast, and sleek, sports car. Now, I don't care. It's just when you sit in the driver's seat, how soft is the chair? How smooth is the ride? Is it like riding on air? I can deal with all the other stuff, whether it's ancient controls or whatever. Just give me a soft seat. The chairs I choose, the cars I ride in, the bed I want to sleep in, and yes, the food I eat. There's even a category of comfort foods. Those are the ones high in sugar and high in carbohydrates. Now, the fact is, I've always liked comfort foods, but I like them a little more as I get older. They just kind of do something for you, right? We know that's not really the comfort that Paul is speaking about. If you experience any physical comfort in this world, it is from God. He's the source of all comfort, physical or otherwise. But Paul is, of course, speaking of of spiritual comfort. Comfort that comes to the soul, bypasses the body. Your body may not be very comfortable at the moment, but the God of all comfort has spiritual comfort for the soul's of God's people. So this word is paraklesis, which means, and I say it to show you it's a compound word, the preposition means proximity. It's a word of proximity. It means near, at. And then the other word comes from the root word, which means to call or to invite. So to call out, to invite, to call to. Now, there are many different nuances in English words in which this word is translated. Consolation, comfort, exhortation, encouragement, entreaty, refreshment. But all those words, wherever they're used, come under the canopy of to be called near to God. So the aim of God, the God of all comfort, is not to push you away in whatever way this comfort comes, it is to call you in close proximity to Himself. He wants to draw you in. That's very critical to understand as we look at this chapter. Whatever we find here, 
The God of all comfort is a paraclete, which is the word used for the Holy Spirit. And what's his aim? To draw us into Christ, not away from him, to draw us closer. Now, the source ultimately of this comfort, Paul would say, is that God is the Father of mercies, the God of comfort. So mercies is like the fountainhead by which the comfort flows. Now this word mercies is only used five times. It's somewhat distinct from where we find the mercy of God elsewhere. It speaks of visceral mercy or emotions and longings. Now, the mercy of God is sovereign still, isn't it? God has mercy on whom He will have mercy, and He has compassion on whom He will have compassion. But this word doesn't just speak of the intellect of God, His sovereign will, but His compassion, His tenderheartedness. Like someone that has a visceral response, that's emotional. God delights at the very core of His nature, at the very heart of God, is a desire to show mercy And from that mercy springs a heart who is a God of comfort. He's not a God of mercy because you're a sinner in need of mercy, and so we are. He's always been a God who's a God of tender mercies. Micah 7.18 would say, Who is a God like unto thee? Rhetorical answer. No one that pardoneth iniquity and passes over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? Question mark. For he will not retain his anger forever. Why? Because he delights in mercy. Beloved, our salvation is dependent on the fact that God delights to show mercy. And he just passes over your transgression. He just passes right over it. Because it passes over unto the Christ. Because God's justice demands that if he will show mercy, he must be just in the display of that mercy so that God is exalted in the salvation of sinners. And rest assured, when God is displaying mercy, He is always saving people. Always. Because He's passing over. He's pardoning every sin because it detonated, it landed on the Christ of the Bible. No wonder Paul says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because all comfort, all mercy is channeled through Him alone. Without Him, there is no mercy. So the source of mercy is back to the Father of mercies. And Father speaks of an origin, doesn't it? Three times God is called the Father. He's the Father of mercies and He's the God of all comfort, which means this comfort is springing from God's delight, His tenderhearted compassion to show you mercy and to give you the comfort that you desperately need today. The purpose. He's obviously the source, but here's the purpose in verse 4. Who is comforting us? Now, Paul is first going to apply this to himself and Timothy in the ministry. But we're going to see it overflows to the church of, of God as well. Who comforteth us, that's Paul and Timothy, the ministry team that had been to Corinth, in all our tribulations so that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves were comforted of God. What a purpose statement. The purpose of the God of comfort in giving you all kinds of comfort, He's the source of it all, is so that when you receive this comfort, you pass it on. You pass it on. There's a whole foundation and website built on the idea, pass it on. Some years ago, a local news station was trying to promote that passing on mindset where you are the beneficiary of some blessing, some good, and you want to pass that on. And that's pretty inherent in all human beings for the most part. I was in a drive-thru one time and I was ordering and I pulled up to the drive-thru and the person working at the drive-thru said, the person in front of you wanted to pass it on. They paid your bill. I'm like, wonderful. And my first thought was, what if I was in that 12-passenger van with all seven children my wife? The conversation might have been, I'd like to pass it on. How much is the bill of the person behind you? $52. What? I think they'd start the bypass foundation instead of the pass it on foundation. The point is, when we receive a blessing from God, and this is by faith and not just 
a secular idea of human beings that would be good for humankind. When we receive this blessing called comfort, we don't bypass it. God expects us to pass it on and then comfort others with the same comfort, the same blessing, the same benefit wherewith we were blessed of God. Now note this comfort of God, which is to be passed on, is to be moved forward, is a comfort that Paul says can come to someone in any trouble. I think that's worth noting. We live in a culture of Christianity where Christianity has been sort of relegated to the professionals. Whoever these professionals are, are the professionals out there. But Paul says, when this comfort comes to you, as it came to them, you then are enabled, you have some ability then to pass it on to someone in any kind of trouble. Now, be sure it doesn't mean you can get somebody out of some kind of trouble and remove their circumstances. But again, we're talking about spiritual comfort. So you can be qualified. You don't need to be a professional. In fact, if you are, that's not good in the kingdom of God. Why is that? Because the first epistle, Paul told the church that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the weak things and the base things of the world to confound the mighty. Why? that no flesh should glory in His presence. So to be a professional is not really a good thing, and I'm speaking in terms of Christianity. You may be a professional in your field, and that's okay. I hope you are. But when it comes to this, you just need an experience of comfort whereby you can comfort any person in any trouble, any kind of trouble. I think it's also worth noting here This comfort comes through the church of God, right? Paul is speaking to the church. He says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints, the sanctified, which are in all Achaia. The church of God. Now, what do you think about when you think of the word church? The Corinthians would have thought, according to the Greek word, any called out congregation of any kind. Ekklesia. Ek, called out, away from. Ekklesia, again from the same root word as paraklesis, called out. Out, away from, called. Any group that gathers together can be called an ekklesia or a church. I wouldn't recommend doing that. It would create quite confusion, wouldn't it? In fact, in Acts 19, it's used in two contexts. Demetrius and the silversmiths were making a lot of money on the goddess Diana. Paul was disrupting that by preaching the gospel. So they get upset. They drag Gaius and Aristarchus into a public assembly called an ecclesia, which was a gathering of people, some confused, some knew what they were doing. It was a tumultuous group. It was a church. Again, I wouldn't call it that. It would be very confusing. But it's ecclesia. They were called out and they gathered. That means that the riots of 220 following the death of George Floyd was a church gathering. It was an ecclesia. It was a tumultuous group destroying things. But they were called out. They were gathered together. I wouldn't call them that. But you understand, as far as the Greek word, that's what it is. Furthermore, in Acts chapter 19, the deputy tells Demetrius and his cohorts... That if they have any problem with these people, they can bring it to the deputies. Otherwise, if you have any other matter to inquire of, it shall be done in a lawful ecclesia, a lawful church. Now, I wouldn't call it that, but that's the word there. A lawful, a council of officials that will hear the matter as they assemble together as an ecclesia. Which means, when Congress is called together for a session, guess what? That's right. They're a church. They're an ecclesia. Now, I wouldn't call them that. That's rather confusing. But that's what the Greek word means until Paul qualifies it. It is the church of God. That changes everything. That means just a few examples, a few things, and this is not exhaustive. It first means we are effectually called out of the darkness into the light, effectually by the gospel, to receive Jesus Christ by faith alone, through grace alone, for the glory of God alone. Congress doesn't fit that, nor does an angry, tumultuous group, do they? Paul told them in the first epistle 
that they were called to be saints, that they were sanctified by God the Father and called to be saints. They were effectually called, they are holy people, positionally in Christ because His righteousness now is united to them. So the membership of an ecclesia is made up of people who've been called out of darkness into the marvelous light of Christ and they trust Jesus. Secondly, they are all indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.6, Paul would say, Know you not that you're the temple of the Holy Ghost? And that the Holy Ghost dwelleth in you, plural, church. So the Holy Ghost indwells the ecclesia. Doesn't indwell Congress, doesn't indwell the tumultuous group. There may be a few people in Congress that are indwelt, but that's still not a church of God. They are indwelt. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? Singular, individually, and corporately, chapter 3. Which you have and you're not of your own, you're bought with a price. So the ecclesia, the church of God, is where the members covenant together to be members together for a purpose, and they're all indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Well, that's a distinguishing factor, isn't it? Now, sometimes my children call me and say, Dad, where you are? Where are you, rather? I say, I'm at the church. I'm not really at the church, am I? This is a church building. Now, it's okay to say that. I think you understand what I mean. I tell my wife, I'm going to the church. It doesn't mean I'm going to assemble we're all assembled together. But technically, this is not a church. It's a building. And it's not the institution of Christianity. It's a called out local assembly of God where this comfort is going to come and be dispersed through the members. And then lastly, but not exhaustively, you could add to this list. It's a place where the people gather together to hear the Word of God and use the spiritual gifts by which they are indwelt by the Spirit to pass on the comfort, right? 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, the spiritual gifts. 1 Peter 2, 6. You also, as lively stones, are being built a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, so that you can offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. God is building a church that He inhabits by the Spirit, for which every covenant member of the church is indwelt by to use the gifts to display comfort, edification, and serve one another. Now, two implications of that for Corinth and us. First of all, be very careful who you say is not a church. Have you seen this church? You would look at that and say, these people are no longer a church. Paul calls them the church of God. A lot of problems, a lot of troubles, and there are some clear criteria in Scripture where we can say that's not a church. We just need to be cautious about that. Because we might have said, boy, these people, are, they're, not, they're not a church anymore. Secondly, are you participating in the church of God? The Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who is comforting us, is bringing this comfort to the place where He dwells, all over the planet. Ecclesia is all over the planet. Whereby this comfort then flows out to its members for the edification, for the building up of the body of Christ. Are you a participant? Do you see how vital the church of God is in the plan of God, for the glory of God, through Christ alone, by the Spirit, through the grace of God, where God gets glory in the church by Jesus Christ? So Paul says, I'm writing to the church of God. These are saints. And the God of all comfort, who comforts us, is bringing that to the church and to one another. So that's the purpose. He's the source. The purpose is in verse 4. And the question now is, what is the pathway? How do we get there? Right? If at this point you've heard enough to say, I'm interested. I mean, I should be. God says this is what He's after. He's the God of all comfort. This is how He does it. So, I'm all in. What's the pathway? How do we get there? Well, before you can comfort anyone in any trouble, you must get into trouble. But not that kind of trouble. Verse 5. Because as the sufferings of Christ abound or increase in us, so... Our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. The pathway to be enabled 
to comfort others in any other trouble is that you have experienced trouble. That's God's pathway. That's how we get there. So what Paul says is that as, his, as the temperature rises in his life, the comfort of God, whereby God comforts him, rises with it. That's the consolation. Verse 6, And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation. The comfort that Paul receives when the temperature rises is now for the church, Paul says. He passes it on. That's the design of God. Which is effectual, it is effective in the enduring or perseverance of the same sufferings which we also suffer, or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Whether I'm afflicted, whether I'm comforted, as the temperature rises, as the comfort rises, the aim of God is that we pass it on. And that pathway is, for Paul and Timothy, suffering. And then he says, verse 7, And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so ye shall be also of the consolation. So the pathway of passing it on is the pathway of your own suffering. That's God's ordained pathway. So let's talk about a few things here. First of all, Paul will use a word related to suffering, directly or indirectly, 17 times in five verses. Eight times, tribulation, suffering, trouble, affliction. Eight times. If you count more or less, let me know. Comfort, consolation, nine times. Which indirectly implies the suffering. Because the consolation comes as a means of the result of suffering. Seventeen times in five verses. Now, if you were an English teacher, you would deduct points in Paul's paper for being excessive and redundant. Paul, you're overstating your case 17 times. Let's shave that off a bit. But Paul's got a perfect paper, we know, because it's by inspiration. Why do we think Paul would emphasize 17 times words related to suffering? I'm going to give you a few that I think are the case. One, he wants to emphasize that the messianic age still means suffering. I don't care what your eschatology is. If you still have sin and a devil and death, there's suffering. I don't care what your eschatology is. Until the resurrection, you've got a world where if there's any evil, there'll be suffering. Paul was definitive when he wanted to make this clear to the church, often reminding churches that he first established this very fact because it's the first thing we often forget. So when Paul takes his first missionary journey from Antioch to to Iconium, to Lystra, to Derbe, when he was almost stoned to death and almost died, he comes back to the same churches. He ordains elders in every church and he says this, or Luke records this, He is confirming the souls of the saints, which means to make them stable, to root them, to ground them, to be like trees planted deeply in the rivers of water so they're not shaking and tottering and move away from Christ. Which means something in the context means there is some vulnerability to the roots being pulled up if they're shallow. So Paul's pushing. He wants to push those roots down. And then he exhorts them to continue in the faith. And here's how he pushes the roots down. And that through much tribulation, we are entering the kingdom of God. Why why do you want to emphasize that, Paul? We just came to faith in Christ. We're happy. Because things are about to happen that can so shake you that you move off your foundation called Christ. And it's called tribulation. Much tribulation. Now the much may be different degrees in different generations. I don't think Paul's saying it's the same amount in every generation. They had a lot more than we have today. But we are experiencing some levels of it. And it seems to be rising. It it ebbs and flows. It comes and goes. 
But tribulation is part of entering. We have entered by new birth. We are in the kingdom of God. And the final entrance into that kingdom will be through tribulation we experience because it's doing something for us. It's making us stable in some way. So, so I think Paul emphasizes that. The church at Corinth thought they had arrived, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now you are full. Now you are rich. Now you reign as kings. Now you have your best life. Paul says, no. We do have the good life. And it's so good under King Jesus. But it's not the best. It's not arrived. But, but they thought it had. Sometimes like the prosperity gospel convinces us. God really wants your best life now. Yeah, in a way, but not like that. Jesus said, woe unto you that are full now. You're going to be empty. You're going to be hungry. Woe unto you that laugh now. You're going to weep and mourn. Now, Jesus is not condemning laughing, or I'm pretty much a condemned person. That wouldn't be the reason He's not, right? If you're experiencing it the best now, that's not to be a Christian, right? As we understand, there, there's tribulation, there are troubles, there's affliction in the kingdom of God. And the church at Corinth thought the Messianic kingdom meant it's all over now. And it wasn't. Secondly, he's emphasizing solidarity in the sufferings of Christ. Listen to how he says it two places. Verse 5, For as the sufferings of Christ abound. And then verse 7, And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings implied of the sufferings of Christ. Partaker means to be a partner, a comrade, an associate, fellowship. Paul is emphasizing 17 words that this pathway to comfort is a pathway of fellowship because God is calling you in through it. He's not pushing you away. See, if we don't understand that, as Peter wrote to the church, the suffering church in 1 Peter 4, where he said, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, because that's what they were doing. As some shocking, strange, surprising thing. You say, well, preacher, we, we know that. You, you know, you've used that verse quite a few times. But how often are you still shocked? How often I say, I can't believe this is happening. Now, we, we say that, but Peter wants us to recover that real quickly. Well, I, I know to some degree why. Because of the many references in the Bible that tell us it is so. That helps what? Ground us, settle us, root us, confirm us, and make us stable. We shake, but the roots can be stable. We understand there's suffering, and that this suffering is a solidarity. It's a fellowship with His suffering. Now, in two ways, how? Solidarity just means being united or having fellowship with someone for a common interest, a common purpose. A group of people that have solidarity together for some cause. Our solidarity is in Christ's suffering. We suffer for His sake, the Bible tells us. Jesus says Himself in Matthew 5, Blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for My sake. So for righteousness' sake is for His sake. So that particular kind of suffering where we are reviled, we are slandered, we are harassed, Hounded because we're Christians in whatever subtle ways or, or very aggressive ways, which is happening in our culture today. Jesus says there's some solidarity here because it's for my sake. It's for righteousness sake. Or as he says in Matthew 10, 24, when he says, the disciple is not above his master, neither the servant his Lord. It is enough for the disciple to be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they called the master of the house Beelzebub or devil, how much more shall they call them of his household? Do not be afraid, therefore. A servant or a disciple is like an apprentice. 
An apprentice is a person that wants to learn a skill, so they attach themselves to a master craftsman. And they spend time with the master, and they learn the skill, so that after they finish the apprenticeship, they do things exactly, or very similar, that the master does. If he makes furniture a certain way, then the pupil makes furniture the same way. Now, if the master gets criticized for his way of making furniture, what happens when the apprentice makes furniture the same way? Oh, he's criticized. So where's the solidarity? Notice Jesus says, if they've called the master a devil, how much more will they call those of his household? You're part of the house. Don't be afraid. The evidence that you're part of the house and that you're learning from the master is that you are experiencing albeit in a much lesser way, some of the pressure that Jesus experienced for really the same reasons. So it affirms, it gives solidarity, it gives fellowship that you're part of the household of God. You've been adopted into the family and you belong to Jesus. The very thing that we are afraid of, that it pushes us away from God, is actually calling us closer to God in solidarity. So the Messianic kingdom is still an age of suffering in some degree. And suffering gives us solidarity with Christ. But then the third reason we're on the pathway of comfort is really the one that Paul is unpacking here. And that's the design. Now we looked at the purpose is to bring the comfort ultimately. But the design here is that the affliction would do something in our relationship to God first, His comfort would come through it so that it would go to others. So when Paul says, whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, that speaks of design, right? I mean, who designed it? Did Paul, when he became a Christian, say, you know what, I know suffering is a part of the plan, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to make sure that when I suffer, it's going to be for the good of the church. I'm just going to work that out. I'll plan the suffering. I'll determine when it happens, what degree it's going to be, and I'm going to work it all out so when it's all over, it's going to be for your comfort and salvation. No. There's a designer behind it who is God. Some of you people like to wear designer clothes. Probably the younger generation. Designer clothing is very expensive clothing. Fashioned by a designer has a label on it because there's a designer behind it. See, your suffering, your trials, your tribulations have the label. It's very costly because of the blood of Christ. He purchased your afflictions for you. And the design of it, they're very costly. And it has God's name on it. He's the designer. Not even the devil is the ultimate designer of Paul's suffering, chapter 12, the messenger of Satan, or of Job's suffering, chapter 1 of Job, Satan brings fire from heaven, winds, smites the house, influences the Chaldeans, influences the Sabians, people die. It's a, a real trouble for Job. But the Bible makes clear, while the devil may be a subcontractor, God is the prime contractor. He has designed the blueprints and the devil takes the blueprints and willingly and unwittingly follows the blueprints. Unwittingly means he's unaware and it's unintentional. He does not want to do this. And lo and behold, every time he moves, God overrules it for his holy purposes, for the good of his people and the glory of his name. What a frustrated devil he must be. So how then does this work? We understand the place of pain in redemption. We understand something about how God uses suffering to sanctify us. But how does it work here? Well, here's the illustration that Paul gives us. In fact, he gives three illustrations in this book. Verses 8 through 10, he gives us the trouble in Asia. Chapter 4, he gives us the trouble in ministry. In chapter 12, he gives us the trouble with the thorn. All three are the pathway of comfort for Paul. As Paul experiences trouble in Asia, trouble in ministry, and trouble with a thorn, 
It transforms something in his life that now he's enabled, he's equipped to bring comfort to others. So I'm going to read the trouble in Asia, but I'm going to go to the second account, chapter 4. Notice the word for in verse 8. Because, so here's the illustration. We would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, probably Ephesus, that we were pressed out of measure above strength insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves. Translated, whether we be afflicted, there's the affliction. And the reason was that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raises is raising the dead. Whether we be afflicted in Asia, the result of that affliction, the pathway affliction was and is your comfort and your consolation. Now I read that one. Turn to chapter 4. And let's look at how Paul unpacks it here. We're talking about the pathway of this comfort comes as we experience trouble by the design of God, the kind of trouble that means pressure, then that equips us to bring that same comfort that we received of God to people in any trouble. Any trouble. Chapter 4. Verse 6, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of the person of Jesus Christ. But, verse 7, we have this treasure, the treasure of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Christ. We have this treasure in clay pots or clay jars, earthen vessels, so that, why did God do that? So that the excellency of the power, the surpassing excellency of the power, may be distinctly and manifestly God's and not Paul's or Timothy's. Verse 8, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, so that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. In other words, whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Now, how is Paul saying it here that's very similar to chapter 1 and very similar to chapter 12? He says, the treasure that's in a clay jar experiences four words. Trouble, perplexity, persecution, and being cast down. Trouble just means pressure. You ever experience pressure? It's used as a, as a wine press. You know, modern day manual wine press is a bucket with this corkscrew in it with a bar, and you just twist it until it smashes the grapes. That's the, that's the word picture of the word trouble. Press or like that little manual juicer you have at home where you cut the lemon in half and put it in there and you, you know, I just give it all I got. Oh, I want every, every, every drop of liquid. That's the word Paul uses. We are trouble on every side. You know, if you put an egg in your hand, don't try this at home, and you give equal pressure, it will not break. Squeeze it as hard as you want. Now somebody's going to try that and your finger's going to hit the side and it's going to break. Equal pressure. You can, it will not break. That's what Paul is experiencing. Trouble on every side. Perplexed means he's at a loss. See, Paul's telling us things about his experience that we wouldn't know. You think this guy's never perplexed. He is totally at a loss. The trouble on every side is brought into place that I don't even know which way to move. And then he's persecuted, which means to be harassed or hounded. Aggressive intimidation. Have you ever been intimidated at work? Aggressive or not so aggressive? Threat of job, threat of demotion. Paul is being aggressively hounded. And then finally he's cast down. The word means to be put in a low place. You ever felt like you were in a low spot? Now there were times when I think Paul was physically thrown to a low spot. Like when he was almost stoned to death. I'm sure they threw him on the ground and started pelting him with stones. 
But I don't think that's what Paul means here. He means he's low in spirits. Who would have ever thought the Apostle Paul, who we read everywhere else, talks about joy and ministry and finishing, that he hit low spots. Perhaps our word would be he's depressed. He's pressed down. So the clay pot experiences four words, and he says, always bearing about the dying of the, in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So all those go together. Clay pot, four words, dying. Not death, present tense. He's dying in his body. It's the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the context tells us where all this trouble comes from. Verse 1. Seeing we have this ministry. This is all from ministry. Paul's not primarily talking about the outside. He's talking about inside the church. Having this ministry as we receive mercy, we are not fainting. So the clay pot in ministry has trouble, perplexity, persecution, and he's cast down. Just like you experience in your life. Paul calls that dying, which I think he's meaning that for for the life of Christ to be manifest, he experiences dying through ministry because ministry is costly and sacrificial. It is for anybody, not just an apostle Paul or a Timothy. You're going to serve people as God wants you to. There's going to be some trouble involved. There's going to be some sacrifices. There's going to be some cost. Just think about being a mother or father. Some people want the benefit of parenthood with no cost and no sacrifice. So they fill their life with things and and activities and you, you never really are a parent. But there's great sacrifice and it costs a lot to minister to your children. There's going to be some trouble, some challenges and some low points. Just as an example that, that brings it to us outside of being an apostle or Timothy. Now on the other side of the ledger, Paul says there's treasure and there's power. The power has four words too. Not distressed, not despairing, not forsaken and not destroyed. He is troubled and pressured but not compressed. It's almost like the opposite. He's perplexed but he's not without hope. He's persecuted but not forsaken by Christ because the Lord stood with him and strengthened him even when at his first answer all forsook him. Jesus never forsook Paul. And then finally, although he was at low points, he was not destroyed. So the treasure that is manifestly seen in the clay pot is that the life of the Lord Jesus may be also manifest in the same body. Whether we be afflicted is for your comfort, uh, uh, consolation, salvation. Paul is saying the same thing. Now, how does this work? When Paul does not succumb to the trouble, when he doesn't quit the trouble, when he doesn't quit the ministry altogether, that proves that there's a power of God in him, and then that power is put on display through the comfort that he receives, and that comfort is four words repeated. First, it's yet not, but not, but not, but not. Paul experiences comfort in his trouble because he knows the dying is the dying of the Lord Jesus, which means he's the source, he's the designer. It's for his sake that he's dying. It's costly and sacrificial, and therefore it's for the light of the power of the excellent treasure to be put on display and not Paul. Now, how does that happen? The clay pot is chipped, cracked, and broken. That's the design of God. Now, chapter 1, he says, we would not trust in ourselves. Whole gold vessel, nice, beautiful vessel. We trust in ourselves. We have self-confidence. 
God's going to take the earthen vessel and start to chip it, crack it, break it. Not to harm us, because the treasure of the light, of the knowledge of the glory of God, which is inside of us, only gets out through the trouble. Without the trouble, you may say it a few times, you may talk about it, it's still there. But the real display of the power of the treasure that sustained Paul when he knew this, so that he said twice, we faint not, we have not lost heart, we are cast down, we are perplexed, we are persecuted, and we are troubled, but we are not cast down completely and utterly because the treasure, the power that sustains us, and the understanding of what God is doing by design gives us immeasurable comfort and strength. Whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation or salvation. Or whether we have a thorn, the grace that's sufficient shows itself in Paul's weakness because the thorn is cracking the pot. So what does Paul say? Well, I'm glorying now in my tribulations. Why? Because then through my weakness, what comes out of me when I'm reproached, when I'm weak, when I'm slandered, when I'm persecuted, is not the power of Paul to turn back the reproach and give it with more power. It's the power of the treasure. That is the pathway that Paul speaks of directly in chapter 1, but indirectly in chapter 4 and chapter 12, whereby we are enabled then to comfort others with the same comfort wherewith we have received of God because we have been in trouble. Have you experienced any trouble to any degree, whether it's as a Christian or living in a sin-cursed world? God's design in part, like this is all the reason, in part is to enable you, to equip you in the ecclesia, to be able to give that spiritual comfort to others. Now what did the church need from Paul? They needed desperately to hear the all-sufficient grace of Christ. If Paul is whole, if there's no cracks and chips, who's he probably talking about? Well, I've ministered to you people and I've preached the word to you. But when Paul is broken and learns not to trust himself, what he brings is the comfort of God and not the comfort of Paul. What he brings is what we desperately need, the all-sufficiency of the grace of God to help us with the same comfort we received when we were in trouble of a different kind or trouble of the same kind. Now here's the upshot that Paul says for the church because he's speaking of himself, transfers it to the church in verse 6 again. Whether we be afflicted, it is for what? Your consolation, salvation. That's how it works. That's the pathway. Which is effectual. What is effectual? Paul's afflicted. It brings him comfort because he knows about the treasure, what God is doing. So he experiences the comfort to keep going. And out of that affliction, he brings comfort, consolation, salvation to the church at Corinth. And that comfort and salvation is effectual when? In the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. So what's Paul saying? God is using this comfort in part for your perseverance. Because what do you want to do in your trouble? I've had it. I'm quitting. Why is this happening to me, God? What is going on here? Paul comes in with the comfort of Christ. He understands. He tells the church why it's happening. And now that's going to be a means that God uses to be effectual in the perseverance of the church when they go through the same or similar sufferings. So Paul says, Our hope then is steadfast, verse 7, knowing that as you are fellowshipping with the sufferings, so you also of the consolation, which means now you're equipped to do the same to someone else. Isn't that wonderful? How God works. And here's the only question left to ask. Are you willing to be an instrument in the hand of God? 
Are you willing to participate in God's design for your trouble and your affliction? Is anybody going through some affliction right now where you just want to quit? You just feel so low where you're in good company. Paul felt low. In fact, in Acts chapter 23, after the Sadducees and Pharisees almost pulled him apart, Jesus came the following night and said, Paul, be of good cheer. Do you know why? Paul is low. Paul, be of courage. I still have a purpose for you. You're going to bear witness of me in Rome just like you did in Jerusalem. With that word, the entire plan of Paul's entire life until he gets to Rome was ordained. You will get to Rome. All that suffering, all the shipwreck, all the problems, Paul is equipped now to be a participant in God's plan to serve and to extend that same comfort that comforted him, that sustained him, that lifted him up when he was cast down, that kept him moving, kept him going because of this great treasure of the gospel that forgives us, empowers us, comes to us, gives us solidarity, loves us, so that we then can be participants in giving the same comfort. And that is fulfilling, beloved, isn't it? It's fulfilling. It's the love of God coming to us in comfort. And then as it goes out, and then Paul finishes, you also helping together by prayer for us so that for the gift bestowed, the deliverance that was bestowed on him, the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. Paul uses two verbs in verse 9 that suggest he's not out of trouble yet. He's still experiencing trouble. So he's confident that by their prayers together, many persons, which means many faces, as if the congregation is looking up to God, the end result of his deliverance and what God's doing in his life is that there will be many persons, many faces as they pray, giving thanks to God by many on our behalf. And that gives God glory, doesn't it? How is it with you, beloved? Do you see trouble in this life? It's not enjoyable. It's not something we ultimately desire. It's painful. It's sorrowful. But isn't it uplifting and comforting that God has designed a good purpose for His glory and our good? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word to us. We ask You to bless us to be such vessels, such earthen vessels clay pots, jars, where the excellency of the power resides and that through the troubles we encounter, those that uh, the pressures of life, the pressures of being a Christian or being a parent or being a son or a daughter, the pressures of work, the pressures that we experience in a fallen world, the pressures of a society that hates you, as we experience those, Lord, help us not to faint but to remember whether we be afflicted, it is for the comfort and salvation of others, for their continuing and being strengthened in the faith. And use us for your glory and help us in those times to remember and understand that you are the God of all comfort. In Jesus' name, amen.